Good morning and welcome to Sport and Life with Sam Kekovich and Leon Wiegard. Sam, good morning. Good morning, Leon. How are you? Australia Day <laughs> and, the, and the Lambassador's it with us. It didn't go without notice, did it? And what a fantastic day. Now, I know it's overcast. It's not going to dampen our spirits. A bit of precipitation. But really, it's symbolic, isn't it? That lamb cutlet. It's all about inclusivity, togetherness, unification, and coming together regardless of colour, cult or creed. It is one of the great catalysts that binds us all together, like a centrifugal force, Leon, the lamb cutlet. Now, a lamb cutlet coming through a brick wall yes. and a couple of people gnawing away at it, there must be a deep meaning behind all that. Well, there is, Leon. There's a profound meaning, meaning to it. It singularly has the capacity to break all those barriers down that are prevalent, that stigmatise our very existence, like bigotry and prejudice and, you know, putting walls to segregate us. We're a united nation, and that's what lamb has done, singly. Could it be said that a lamb chop is so tough that it can actually break through a brick wall? Ah, now there's a great paradox. I can, you can be excused for thinking the lamb's tough, <laughs> but the Australian farmer has done such a special job. See, in your day, without being disparaging in your earlier day, like mine, I guess when we were kids and the mum had roast and seven uh, veggies, Yes. Uh, we used to embellish our food with a little bit of mint sauce and so forth because in reality it was fairly tough and it was mutton. But the quality of food today that the farmers have done in great adversity and produced is just fantastic. Our unheralded heroes, those wonderful volunteers, our farmers, the first respondents, and that's what it's all about today. Celebration of all people coming together and forgetting about your differences. The differences don't exist in this country. We are the most prosperous, inclusive, diverse nation in the world. So whatever you do, put your duke out and rejoice living in the best country on the planet. That's what we're doing today and from here on in. So you ask me how I feel? I feel fantastic. Happy Australia Day. To all. Today we're talking to Ron Reed. Ron Reed Another is, great Australian. He's a well, he's a legend in the uh, world of sports journalism. He uh, has been with the Herald Sun for something short of 50 years, not much short. Uh, started off as a country boy and has written a book and it's an interesting, um, it's a combination really. It's two stories, one about him and one about his father Bill mm. uh, who has a damn interesting story about his uh, adventures in the war, and they were adventures. My so word. let's welcome Ron Reed. Good day, Ron. Good morning. Morning, Leon. Morning, Sam. More affectionately known as the Hound. The Hound. That's <laughs> right. Well, who gave you the name the Hound? Oh, look, it's lost from the mists of time, but I think Percy Jones had a bit to do with it. Uh, the old carbon footballer. Yeah. <laughs> I lived with Perce for a while, which uh, says as much in the book. But uh, uh, I think he uh, was responsible for it many, many years ago. Was that, was that in Rockley Parade in South Yarra, or did you go to Richmond? The, uh, where'd you, no, we were, in Turak, in Turak? Uh, we were in Turak at one stage until um, we got kicked out of there. Well, you were kicked out of a few places there. And, and <laughs> I didn't want to raise them. But, uh, <laughs> and by the way, there's nothing to do about uh, non-payment of rent. No, no, no they, there's nothing wrong with their rent or their bonds. They're up to speed there, but their level of behaviour and tolerance. And of course, I think the night that Perce uh, threw the potatoes at a party next door. That's right, threw eggs uh, too, I believe. Yeah, and next thing the, uh, the cops were knocking on our door. That was the end of our uh, welcome in Turak. Well, <laughs> they had a lengthy tenure there. They were there for three weeks this time. <laughs> and, Ron, you would have had a, an association with, uh, with Percy and Gags Gully when they had their pubs? Uh, the the Dover was one, and the the Blush and Stutter, the well known Blush and Stutter. 
Yeah, uh, I think Perth's had about five pubs. Uh, might even be up to six now. Although he's uh, he's living quietly down at Bowen Heads yeah. at the moment. He had Haskins uh, at the yeah. last one. Yeah, well, yeah. north of yeah. Troy Arms. Yeah, but yeah. also uh, on top of just his sporting connections of that Carlton, I know what you're getting at with Percy Jones and Adrian Gallagher, but the two other prominent people that were also associated in that era, namely Peter Costa from the Sun, who was another mad Carlton yeah. man, another drunk. Not a drunk, I retract that statement. You know, used to involve well, a few, loosely called loosely drunks were all that way. But, you know, enjoyed the company of, you know, yeah, uh, a few over beers. the drip tray, which was, a, you know, is our common watering hole. And also uh, the late, great uh, embarrister. Yes, the embarrister, Colin Lovett. Colin uh, Lovett. Very, very yeah. sad uh, his passing well, sad, yeah. just a couple of weeks ago. Um, yeah, he was a great Carlton man and... Uh, also a cricket tragic. Uh, was he yeah, president of Carlton, wasn't he? Yeah, he, he was president of the Carlton Cricket Club and uh, played cricket in the parks and uh, you know, played played a bit with uh, the old Plastic Eleven that you and I uh, had some time. Hound was a great cricketer, you know. The Hound when he's oh, early yeah, days. Plastic. But also he went to, if my memory serves good, because I went over there many many years later with the Lamb commercial. To Shepherd's Bush, you played at Shepherd's Bush, did you not? I did. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of Australians. Shepherd's Bush was a bit like a an Australian colony within the uh, within London suburb, where and they had the local. What was the Aussie pub was there, and where most Aussies used to gravitate there, didn't they? Mm-hmm. Shepherd's Bush. Yeah. In fact, uh, it was fantastic. But Hound played a lot of good in the Lancashire League. Was it the Lancashire League? It's not uh, the Premier League. The, the Middlesex League. The Middlesex was, uh, League, was, yeah. Uh, so Hound was a good tearaway uh, quickie and he kept in the Plastic 11, which in those days boasted test players. And it had a bit of, bit of Hollywood about it, uh, Plastic 11. And uh, as a good midweek comp, they were very competitive. Mm, it was competitive. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's covered in the book War Games, it's called, and it's a father and son memoir of war and sport. And the the whole concept, of course, was pretty natural when you think about it. What took took you so long to get round to doing it? Um, I suppose because I, I realised a couple of years ago that. Um, the Tokyo Olympics were going to fall on the 75th anniversary of the of the atom bomb in Nagasaki that brought an abrupt end to the war. And uh, my old man, Bill, was one of 24 Australian prisoners in Nagasaki at the time, and every one of them walked away while there were hundreds and hundreds of prisoners from other countries living more or less next door, and they all survived. And I thought it was a terrific story, but it took me a long time to come to grips with it because my old man was like a lot of old soldiers. He, he didn't much like talking about the war. And I was well into adulthood before I found out much about it. But uh, when I realised that uh, there was going to be this segue to, into the, the Olympics, I decided to go to Japan for the Olympics, go to Nagasaki to see the uh, peace memorial there where his, his name's up on the wall. And, uh, and take the book from there. So I, was, I, was, I spoke to John Coates from the, uh, the Olympic Committee who was uh, happy to <coughs> credit me to the Olympics. And he said, yeah, that's a story that must be told. Uh, th- those old war stories have been uh, forgotten or passed Pretty over. Pretty moving moment, then, wouldn't mm. that wouldn't be a moving moment. Uh, yeah. It was an interesting thing, that, because I went to Hiroshima and it's a very, very moving thing. For, mm. But for somebody like you with a personal touch to go to Nagasaki would have been and will be when you mm. eventually get there mm. Mm. So, and, and they, the Japanese have done it pretty well they've left uh, enough of the destruction around to give you a feel for it and, mm. uh, and there's a fitting memorial and uh, by the way the, the, your father and the other 23 
were so close to the epicenter too, where the bomb was the bomb. The Nagasaki bomb, I don't know where the Hiroshima one was, but it was dropped from high in the air, 500 metres or something. Yes, it was. Mm-hmm. And your dad and his mates were uh, about 1.2 or 1.3 k, uh, k away, yeah, which is yeah. bloody close. So they were pretty well right under it. Yeah, that's and sure. uh, there's never really been a, a, a proper explanation of why they were lucky, every one of them. And nobody else was. It's amazing when you see the remnants of Hiroshima. I mean, so when Anola Gate did drop it, you see one building erect and you see one person walking around. Yes. Mm. And it's amazing. How the, how the heck can any of that survive when you consider mm. the ripple effect that it has and how broad its uh, devastation is? Mm. Just amazing. But how did your early days started way back? You're a Warrnambool boy? Yes. Uh, well, I was, I was actually in Ballarat, but I went to Warrnambool when I was, my family moved there when I was about 13. So all my teenage years were in Warrnambool. I know you're a very humble man. Uh, you're multi-talented. Uh, you were a sporting, had some sporting prowess, played for your beloved Dennington. Now, you started as a copy boy there at the Warrnambool Times, whatever it is, the Warrnambool... Warrnambool Standard. Warrnambool Standard. So you did court, you did uh, sport, and you did a bit of communal stuff, which everyone does, I would imagine, as a copy boy. But what surprised me, your real big gig that you had difficulty covering. Now, Leon, you and I would have no problems covering this story. Uh, it was the uh, the uh, local competition of Dennington. He was a pretty pretty classy mover at Dennington. And the local medal, I think, was the East Sam medal? Uh, it was the... I, I just forget the name of it. It was, it was, a, it was actually sponsored by the guy who ran... The, the, the pie cart outside the Waterville right. Hotel but anyhow, this that is he a, gave this a tray. This is oh, the, that big, was it? <laughs> yeah. No, so it, was, is, it was almost the Brownlow Medal. Brown, it was the equivalent of the Brownlow Medal in the local competition. He had to cover the story. But he was also a free post favourite to win the award. So, lo and behold, he did win the award. Then, shock, horror, he had great difficulty in reporting it. Whereas you and I would have taken up what? No problem. Four pages? I would have taken <laughs> up. I would have been very elaborative in that regard. But the hound, you, you had difficulty reporting on your own skills. Why was that? Well, uh, I don't know. I don't know whether modesty has ever been a word with me, but, uh, but I suppose that's what it boiled down to. But it got worse because we won the premiership, and if I can modestly say... I was BAG in the grand final, and I couldn't write that either. So, <laughs> so and how would that? What, what declension would you write it in? I was in the ruck, or or Ruckman Reed? Or? Yeah, I think we had to pretend it was somebody else writing it. In the, That's right. Great stories, aren't they? Great story. Dennington is famous for dairy product, isn't it? Uh, Dennington uh, was famous for only one thing. It was the uh, home of the Nestles. Nestles. Uh, That's right, Nestle, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, Nestles used to uh, run a cricket team in the local A-grade competition and uh, and it employed half of Warnable, so... And it was Eden uh, Fletcher Jones, you put them in and a bit of milk and yeah. a lot of dairy around Warnable. It was Fitzroy's territory yeah. when they, they used to have the, uh, the state uh, split up for the VFL. Oh, right, the, the, the Hamden League. Yeah. Zone, yeah. It was a powerful league. Oh, it was well. the second most powerful outside the Evans and Murray, the Hamden. Well, the sadness is, uh, just on a, a matter of country footy, uh, all of those areas were good. You know, you talk about Ballarat, well, mm. how strong were they? How many mm. players? And the, the Warrnambool was mm. famous for the players from there and 
the surrounding areas, yeah, yeah. from your area, Albans and Murray, yeah. Murray um, where so many, Central Victoria, you Bendigo. Know, Bendigo, well, Bendigo. Carlton, but, yeah. So, but, but you know, uh, I don't know, it doesn't say, it's all changed now, that's yeah. another matter. You cover a lot about the Olympics, um, Ron, and, um, and I think you went to eight? Uh, yeah, eight Summer Olympics and one uh, Winter Olympics, which was in Japan. So that was another reason I wanted to make the Japan connection uh, go the full circle. You, you went. Uh, we, we'll jump around a bit here because it's, uh, and we'll get around to your dad too. Yeah. And uh, he, he's miraculous escapes. Uh, really, uh, an incredible story. But uh, going back to a, a topic that you had in there was the, the thought of having a medal for the most competitive or most uh, the bravest or the the guy that over or the person that overcome most in those olympics uh, uh, to be recognized and you, you pinpointed john sieben and a few a few of those guys over the time mm. that didn't go anywhere no it didn't um, i had that idea when we we're in london in um, 2012 um, I'd, I'd always been fascinated by the bill roycroft story and i thought this when you think about it, there's a lot of them. Every yeah, games is at yeah. least one, if and if not two or three. So anyway, I, I put it to John Coates, and uh, who heard me out. And at that point, I was working for the uh, Olympic Committee in in London, writing for their their uh, team magazine. So I wrote a column in there, and it, it got a fair bit of feedback. A lot, a lot of athletes said to me they thought it was a good idea, but anyway, it hasn't gone anywhere. John's a bit. Um all over the place with that because we started an award here in Victoria through the Olympic Institute mm. of Victoria where we we had a, an award and still do uh, voted by the competitors themselves all, all of the teams uh, past and present um, the the best performed Victorian in the in the Olympics you know uh, both male female and team and John was cut up a bit at that. He said, oh, no, you shouldn't do that. You know, it, it, it sort of changes things. You know, you're rewarding some people <coughs> for getting others. And yet they give financial rewards to gold medalists. Mm -hmm. So he's got a bit of a split, split, split idea about how to recognise <laughs> these people. Uh, that, I mean, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter either way, but there's some good ideas out there. And Maybe that's that not his to... idea. It's, a, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a not so good. We're all, all got a bit of that, I guess. But, uh, Ron, going back to um, your, your dad now, the interesting story was he, he w was in a machine gun uh, outfit uh, when he arrived in his destination, which I think was in uh, Southeast Asia, Indonesia or something yeah, like or that. Yeah, in Indonesia. Mm. Um, they arrived and all the equipment was on another boat and didn't get there, so he was left with a pick handle or something. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Supply line cut off. <laughs> Pretty not, good. Not the one thing you want to hear on the radio, sorry. <laughs> well, we well, well, just the backstory is, at that time, the Japanese were swarming. Mm. They, were, they were all over the place. So yeah. they were with a pick handle. I mean, it's a quite a funny <laughs> image in, in your mind, you know, 50, 60, 80 years later. Yeah. Well, they, they, that's right. They had almost no weaponry. Uh, which boggles the mind, doesn't it, when you think about oh. it, you know, going to war with a pick handle. But they knew they, they had no choice but to surrender, and they did. So and that was early in the war, and he ended up spending uh, oh, about four years altogether. In, in a POW? Incarcerated, yeah, in two different prison camps. Mm. Yeah, Nagasaki was the second one. And got torpedoed? Yeah, they, they, they took them from um, uh, Java 
to Nagasaki and uh, the night before they got to Nagasaki, an American submarine torpedoed them, sank the ship. Uh, there, were, there were hundreds of them on board, plus a lot of Japanese too and some Japanese civilians. Everybody ended up in the drink. They don't uh, make many mistakes, the Yanks. Every time they get the intel wrong, but, you know, <laughs> so they let, they let them go anyway. It's got to land somewhere. They, nine, nine times out of ten, they're right. Yeah. <laughs> but there so, were, sounds uh, like my golf. <laughs> well, I hit it. I don't know where it went, but I hit it. <laughs> Yeah, there were a flotilla of ships, so the, not all the ships were sunk, so it was a matter for these guys, uh, the prisoners, to try and clamber back on. Most of them didn't survive, but my old man managed to uh, get a hold of, uh, of a deck and was trying to put himself on board, and one of the crew came along and kicked his fingers off <coughs> and sent him back into the water. Anyway, he still managed to uh, get on another ship and ended up in Nagasaki. Sure mm. Healthy resolve. So this guy, uh, he survived that, and now he survived the atom bomb over his head. Yeah. And, of course, there are all sorts of atrocities, and we know mm. all about that. We, we should have lived longer. We would have taken a lot of tigger with him. Uh, <laughs> we, we don't want people to uh, think that we're taking light of the war, but it is no. a long time gone, and mm. uh, it's a book that we're sort of talking about that is very, very interesting to read yeah. about Ron's story in sport and his dad's, uh, well, it's reminiscent of our hero. You know, we talk about Weary Dunlop. I still, Weary Dunlop, a vanilla boy, I bought those chairs at the City and Naval Club on Weary Dunlop. Weary Dunlop's got a similar Hang story. On, but, uh, tell us about the chairs. Remember the city, the military and naval club in the, in the, yeah, in the city? Yeah, I know the club well, yeah. Well, when they sold, they auctioned their chairs you oh, know, in they? the main dining room. And I got one I devoted to Weary Dunlop oh, and okay. gave it to the, uh, at the, uh, the Turak RSL. Oh, Okay. Fantastic. But they're similar stories, those war stories mm. about the ones that survived were just horrific. Mm. And, but you're right, people are reluctant, or the ones that survived are reluctant to even talk about it. Mm. It was my, with my old man, uh, eventually, 40 years later, he went back. He always wanted to go yeah. back. And uh, he returned and uh, had a reunion with the one Japanese captor who looked after them properly. Looked after them. Gave them a bit of extra soup now yeah. and again and... And things like that. So they uh, they went back. Bill Bill and his mate Murray, who also lived in Warrnambool, and they went back and drank a few beers with this this old guy and um, looked around and and uh, came home with the, with closure, I guess. Yeah. And uh, then died not very much later. And they 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 knew what each other were talking about, even though they didn't understand the language. Yes, they did. Yeah, it was all about goodwill and. Yeah, and peace. Forty years after the event, and, and as uh, as Bill said, uh, you know, he'd, he'd, he'd seen one uh, mushroom cloud, never wanted to see another. All of those guys who escaped thought it was a good thing, the bomb, because uh, if it hadn't brought the war to an end, uh, there would have been thousands, millions, perhaps more deaths uh, overall. So, mm. so the silver lining, if there can be in, in such a thing. Um, was that at least it did it did end the war? December 7, 1941, mm. the island of Oahu over Hickenbottom Airport. The zeros come streaming in. The Yanks intel once again. They've been warned 48 <coughs> hours. They're on their way. Even the red flag was on top of them. They said, "Oh no, it's someone just having a joyride around here." Until the stark reality dawned upon them. Mm. I remember sitting on the Arizona, you know, which is now a grave. You've probably all been to Hawaii, sitting on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just horrific. And you, you wonder, you're right. 
you know, it's a shocking way to put an end to things, but uh, what could have been or what might have been, and here we are worrying about prejudices and bigotry and thinking how lucky we are living in the most fortunate piece of dirt on the planet. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. The speed of the thing happening with uh, Bill Reid, uh, he decided to join up in 1940, from memory, so the war had been going, you know, since 39, uh, and his mate uh, from... Ballarat. Bendigo. Bendigo, that's mm, right. Mm, mm. Who finished up down at Warrnambool as well somehow. Mm. Um, or, or is that, no, that's Jobley. No, that was, a, that was a different guy. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. They, he, he, he finished up joining up with his mate and he had to mm. wait for his mate to mm. clear a few commitments. And uh, But the speed with which they train people and all of a sudden they're on the boat, mm. you know, not, God, you're off the war, you know. Mm. And when you get off at the other end, you're in the war. You're not sort of in a holding pen or something. So <laughs> yeah. you, you sort of, there you are. Made you stack up. Here's your, here's your 3 yeah. Now get in the firing line. No, here's your pick. <laughs> <laughs> and whatever you do, don't light a fag at night, all right? <laughs> so uh, I mean, this is typical, so typical of so many... And, and most of us, our general age, wouldn't have got much information from our dads because they didn't really, as uh, Sam said, they didn't speak much about it. My, my no. dad was in Borneo and... I, no idea what he was doing up there. Mm. No, my, my old man uh, didn't speak about it at all when I was young. And uh, when I became a journalist, I, I really should have gone and asked him a lot more questions. And I only found out um, uh, when he did die, and he, he, he died having heart surgery not long after he'd been back to Nagasaki. But my brother, who's also no longer with us, he discovered 19 handwritten pages of a, of a memoir that that Bill had started to write as if he was writing his own book. I don't know whether it would have gone all the way to a book, but that was where all the detail of the uh, torpedoing mm. and, the, and the atom bomb. So he, he got most of it off his chest finally, but he didn't tell me he was doing it. If he had of, I would have mm. yeah, yeah. helped Well, it's good to know he's in a good place mm. and he had closure mm. and uh, God rest his soul. He did a great, a great service to the nation. Of all your interviews, Dennis Lee was difficult, but you had this love-hate thing with Shane Warne. You always said Shane Warne was your your greatest interview and the guy you wanted to be with most, and yet you had a love-hate relationship. You had difficult times with Shane Warne. Yeah, I, I, I don't know about the, the, the word hate uh, I, I, okay, wouldn't, he, I wouldn't use. But, a, uh, he, he, he had an intense dislike, mm. with, with, probably through naivety and ignorance, because he didn't quite understand how to cope with the media. And you, probably being the old hound that you were, probably just struck a few raw edges with him that he wasn't fully capable of. Yeah, look, in Warney's first few years, and uh, he says that himself now, he uh, he struggled to understand uh, why the media were interested in him uh, off the field as well as on the field. And uh, he didn't get along all that well with the media in general for, for quite a while. And there, there came one day when uh, I, got, I got a call at breakfast, we were up in Brisbane, and, uh, uh, and was I coming to training? And when we got there, um, the media manager locked Warney and I both in the umpire's dressing room and said, now, you guys sort yourself sort of out, out yeah. <laughs> and knock on the door when you're finished. So... Um, so we did that, uh, Warney, and uh, after a while we'd both run out of you things both. to say. And I said to him, Warney, look, you're not about to stop playing cricket for Australia anytime soon, and I'm not going to stop writing about it. Uh, we'd better draw a line in the sand. 
and he's looked at me and said, yep, yep, let's do that. And so after that, it was, so you're on good it terms was much now. smoother going. We're on terrific terms now, yeah. He uh, invited me around to his place in Brighton about a year ago. When I asked him, I told him I wanted to write about all this in, in the War Games book. Not too shabby so, a bow too, I might add. No, no. Uh, we spoke about your father's military history. Mm. Now, I know yours is limited, but uh, you almost inadvertently got caught in a bomb raid once at, on the Sri Lankan tour, did you not? You had yes. to avoid a... Uh, you scarfed to a bomb dugout, did you not? I did. I was uh, I was in Colombo waiting for the Australian team to turn up for the World Cup, and uh, and at that time, uh, all of Sri Lanka was in the middle of a civil war. So this morning, I'm in the hotel, getting ready to walk up the street, and there's an enormous explosion. Mm. What had happened was that two guys had uh, two suicide bombers had driven a uh, truck full of explosives up into the main door of the of the, of the National Bank. They killed, uh, I think there was 100 dead and about 1,000 injured. Now, that happened 10 minutes walk from the hotel where I was walking every day at lunchtime. <laughs> Another half an hour and I'd have been walking past. Over an hour. Now, you covered many tours. What's your favourite? Obviously, the Ashes, you're an English, you're a traditionalist in so many ways. I know the Ashes would be your favourite tour. I think the West Indies. Um, the Windies? Yeah, it's... Uh, the, the one tour I did of the West Indies was remarkable. In the first test, uh, Australia bowled the West Indies out for 51 and won easily. After that, Brian Lara put on the greatest display of batting I've ever seen. He made a, a double century and two centuries in the last three tests, and uh, the series ended up to all. But it was just uh, such a pleasant place to tour to the West Indies. Antigua, Barbados, fantastic place. Uh, going back to Warney, I, I, um, he's an interesting bloke, isn't he? And, and good luck to him. He's developed into a world figure. Um, but he was very sensitive uh, when he was young. But funnily enough, he bought a bit of it on himself because his nickname at St Kilda was Hollywood. Mm. And so he must have had that flair when he was very young. And I remember working with Slug Jordan at 3UZ. Uh, to, in fact, we, we did a footy show at the Blush and Stutter going way back to the pubs so that was, that was 25 years ago um, and, and and finished up at Ray Jordan finished up being on the, the Good Sports program with us for uh, most days of the week and uh, he was saying God we've had this bloke down at training can he spin the ball God you know and Slug was you know a very good judge you know him yeah and uh, so that was warning but he was always pretty sensitive and any, even in our little program you know if something said wrong and even as he got into the Australian team his mate or manager at the time Austin Robinson would, who I knew very well he's a water pie player um, he, he'd ring me and say oh look lay off warning lay off I just said that he was this or that you know what's wrong with that and so, you know, he, he was always that way, but he, I think he's grown through that, hasn't he? Yes, I think so, yeah. He's, look, he's still on pretty good terms with himself, but uh, yeah, most people who are successful are. And, yeah, one, one is, uh, he's, he's got past his, um, I suppose, his suspicion of the media yeah. and he understands now. because he, he works in the media now. I mean, he writes a newspaper column. He does television commentary, and uh, I think he's got a much better idea now of it. Uh, what uh, what people are on about when they talk about him? There's a couple of things you can't do in life, Sam. You can't beat City Hall, and you can't beat the media. 
No. One way or another, it's got to be managed, you know, one way or another. What, what's the point of having a go at the media when they've got all the power? So, and the same trying to beat the AFL. Well, they can uh, be so, so helpful in so somebody. many ways. <laughs> well, they you can know, be, that's right. In terms of promoting you if you're mm. smart, but, but like a, all of us that are ignorant, you tend to be a bit belligerent and it works against you, but unless you're very good, you can overcome that hurdle and hopefully get through the labyrinth. Hound, what's the biggest story you wrote? I think the one I enjoyed most was um, uh, revealing that Alex Desilenko had found a brother that he never knew he had. Which is in the book, by the uh, way, it is. War Games. Mm. His mother had given this uh, baby up for dead in a, when she was in a prison camp during yep. the war and uh, spent the next 40 years or so wondering what had ever happened to him, assuming he'd been killed by the Nazis or who knows what. Anyway, the guy surfaced and uh, Alex was a very emotional reunion. In a big reunion, I yeah, remember. Yeah, The guy uh, who was also called Alex, um, and he, his surname, I forget now, was uh, uh, Alex's mother's maiden name, so he was he was the right... Uh, he, he was fair dinkum. Yeah, I think it's a beauty. It's in, it's in the book here. Mm. It's on uh, mm. page 131, and I'll get it for you in a minute. I won't be able to pronounce it anyway, but it's one of those yeah, almost it's, Russian. It's, it's, yeah, it's Ukrainian. Ukrainian, yeah. yeah. Mm. I'll pronounce it if you find it. <laughs> well, there's the page. Have a look at that. I think Carlton were trying to slot him on the other half-forward line, weren't they? <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he was a goalkeeper uh, in, in Poland, where he was living, and uh, almost uh, international level, apparently, so... So the talent was there. There's a bit of blood there. Mm. So, um, so going going back to the just to finish with Bill for the time, um, um, the story is now untold or been revealed, if you like. And um, if you make, did you make contact with any of his mates that are still alive, or were they all gone? No, they're all dead now. Yeah. Uh, I did make contact with uh, Murray Jobling's daughter, who still lives in Warrnambool. Uh, and she, she's helped me. Uh, yeah, there's a lot in there of Murray's own yes. accounts of the, the torpedoing and, and the bombing. So he lived through it with Bill. Esavlenko. Oh, thank you. Esavlenko, which is a derivative of Jesselenko. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Master. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, we're talking about you yourself, Ron, and uh, your journalism. Uh, did you have a hero as a young bloke coming through? Warnable because you you made a fairly that was a fairly rapid development from the Warnable Standard up to the Herald Sun or the, the Herald and Weekly Times network. That's a, that was a big step, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I did about three and a half years in at the Warnable Standard as a cadet, and then uh, I got a, I got a grading early, and uh, I had a couple of um, mates who were at the Herald, uh, notably. Colin Duck, who, who came yes. from the Warrnambool Standard, and he went on. He was the last editor of the Sun, so he was a very successful. And his daughter is he, involved. Yeah, uh, his daughter Shaborn. She's uh, yeah. she's at the uh, Herald Sun still. Um, so yeah, I, I, I guess I, I followed him and uh, and Sam made it, uh, mentioned Peter Costa before. Peter Costa, who Rex. hasn't had a drink for twenty years. No, uh, no, by no, the no, way. no, no, no. <laughs> Rex, Rex Paul. <laughs> Uh, well, Rex, I, 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 I knew Rex, but he had, I had nothing to do with him personally. No, Tom Pryor? Tom used to have a go. He's the ghost for uh, Lou yeah. Riches, of course. And, mm. 
Um, but Priory. they were working characters around and they, they spent a lot of time. Were you a Phoenix boy? Did you go to the Lou's pub? Oh, I think everybody uh, went to Lou's pub uh, in, the, in the vain hope that Lou might buy you a drink if you bought enough of them yourselves, but, but that never happened. Uh, Is it true you never bought one? Uh, I don't recall uh, ever getting one, no. You're more likely to get a whack behind the ear. Not from Lou. No, from Tom Pryor. Well, I think Tom got the whack behind the ear. I think uh, our, our friend uh, Coconut Roberts might have seen to that one night in the Phoenix. Uh, oh, you could polarise an audience prior, eh? I drove you home many a night, Tom. But anyhow. And the, the love affair with Carlton, when, when did that start? Well, um, I actually grew up in a Melbourne family. Um, my grandmother's brother is Percy Beams, who was, oh, uh, right. who was best what? on the ground in three successive yeah, premierships. Great cricketer for, uh, as well. Yes, he was, a, he was a Shield cricketer who uh, got to the verge of the test team. So my family was very much Melbourne. But when I came back from a couple of years in London, uh, as we've already discussed, I found myself knocking around with Perce Jones and Gags and others. And so what football I was going to was, was Carlton because uh, I didn't know anybody at Melbourne. But uh, after a while, I knew everybody at Carlton. So I thought, well, there's not much point batting for a team that I, uh, that I have no personal attachment to. So I became a Carlton supporter. I know that's illegal in Melbourne to change your teams, but uh, that's what I did. <laughs> it's generational. You know the rules. Now, what happens when you finish a book? Uh, I don't know what you're like, but... Um, who, do, who, who can I turn to? I, I've known people in my life that they're, 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 it's a well-known type of person that can never finish anything because they think that they can do something better tomorrow. You know, right, I've finished that book, but I'm not going to put it, it out yet uh, because I reckon I could rewrite it again. You know, they'll never finish yeah. anything. So apparently that's a type of... You'd have to be a psychiatrist to work out what I'm talking about, I suppose. But when you finish that book, and you're now it's, it's printed and it's ready to go and it's in the shops and all that. It's called War Games. Um, did you say, oh, God, perhaps I should have included or I should have excluded? or Is that is that the process or do you just uh, put I don't, it I don't think it's it. anything excluded. I, I did have to chop out one whole chapter only for space reasons. The publisher wanted it to be a bit shorter. But, no, there's, there's nothing in there that I would, uh, I would leave out. As for what else should be in there, well, yeah, there's, there's a few other stories. Uh, uh, if I had to do the book as a second uh, version of it, well, OK, I don't have another war story like like my no. dad's. But, but, yeah, there's, there's been plenty of stuff. Uh, that Hang on, you've also me. got, you've acquired a, uh, a great love for cycling. You know, you covered uh, Melbourne and Wanderer, which is a big affair, and then also, I think, six or seven uh, Tour de France. Where'd that all emanate from? Uh I, I, I had a passing interest in it, and I was, I was, I've always liked the big events, and the Tour de France was one that was sort of on the horizon, and then um, I, uh, I got talking to our mate uh, John, Trevorrow. John Trevorrow about it, and he said, well, look, I go every year, and uh, we have a good time, so why don't you come? So, on one of his Contiki tours. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know what I was letting myself in for, I, <laughs> I must say. Uh, sometimes <laughs> I'll call the Fakawi tours. <laughs> <laughs> now, we haven't got a reservation here. Oh, you have, but tomorrow for five? No, no, sir. <laughs> that's, that's next month. <laughs> yeah, you never knew where you were living or eating or drinking or, or anything, but, but look, they were terrific fun, and yeah. uh, I, I, I went on three or four or five of them, and uh, 
and eventually uh, our other mate Jerry Ryan started going as well and we know that that led to the formation of the uh, Green Edge team. Green Edge too, and yeah. a victory, yeah. Australia's first victory in the tour too, yeah. Yeah. which is fantastic. Uh, journalism over 50 years, you would have seen a big change from the old days of plotting, you know, the old typewriter to now all the electronic warfare that's available to you. But what's the single big thing in, in journalism you found? Uh, we're talking before, Leon and I, in our dealings, we're talking about confidentiality, and about bonds, about mateships, about trusting. Is that, that still prevalent or are you just... Uh, look, I think the ethics are much the same, except it's, it's a lot more competitive now. Is, uh, jobs are hard to come by and uh, people are desperate to keep them when, when they get them. So that can uh, lead to a bit, to of, a bit yeah. of leaking around the, uh, the edges of, uh, of things. But um, there just aren't uh, the characters in here. People, are, there's been a, a big attrition rate with sports journalists over the last year or so, as there has in a lot of industries. But um, you know, I was talking to a guy from the... Um, the Adelaide Advertiser, Rhys Homfray, he was the best best they had. And uh, he's gone to work for the Adelaide Crows. And I asked him why. And he said, well, the job just isn't what it used to be. He said, I had this dream job and it's no longer what it is. So I want to do something new. So has that been curtailed, do you think, by, we've seen the social, the erosion of the social cultural issues in our land over the years from what could have been printed once and what once was perceived as being irreverent and satirical to now being very offensive and almost racist or homophobic or whatever. Has that in any shape or form been led to the emasculation of the workforce? No, I don't think so. I think people's attitudes uh, to racism and all that, they've been hardened up a bit because uh, it's it's such an issue these days. You know, for a long time, that sort of stuff. In football, I mean, there weren't as many Aboriginal players as there are now, and so you didn't hear much about racism. Now, uh, it, it, it is a big issue, and and now that uh, uh, women's sport has, has taken the, the, the revolution that it has, that's another area where uh, things are under much more scrutiny. Yeah. So, so all of uh, journalism, not just sports journalism, has got a lot more to think about. Oh, yeah, right across the board. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, Specifically targeting sports journalists because mm. that's your mm. that's your forte, but I would imagine over the years it would have been very difficult. You would have seen an enormous amount of change mm. in the way it's delivered and the relationship you would have had with your uh, with your quarry. Yeah, yes, the relationships have changed. I mean, I'm, I'm old enough to remember when you could go to the cricket and at the end of the day go down to the dressing room and have a beer with exactly. the, uh, with with the players. And Richie Benno, all those years ago, back in the 1960s, um, because he was a journalist, he introduced that and it remained the case for you know, a couple of decades where the journos could go to the dressing rooms and, yeah, and, and get the right story. But uh, you can't get within uh, half a mile of the dressing rooms now. You know, so that just doesn't happen. So relations are a bit more... Um, I remember when we went to the West Indies, it was Steve Waugh's first tour as captain and he called a meeting at the start and said right he said you guys can knock on my door or ring my phone at any time within reason as long as there is a reason but he said I won't be in the bar with you he said uh, I'm a professional doing my job your professionals doing your job and that's the way it's got to be and that's uh, and that's pretty much been the case ever since. Mm. Our guest is Ron Reed, and you're on 
sport and life, and we are enjoying. What are you having over there? Uh, Leon, you know very well what I have all the time. The great Mitchelton product called the print. Top of the range. Uh, it is. It's beautiful. Look, I'm not shickered, as you well know. Sometimes I am. Australia Day. You're Australia Day. I'm a little tipple. Having, a, having a few little uh, tiplets. But uh, it's just a fantastic product. I know it's owned by a mate of ours, but we don't patronise or condescend because the reality is it is a genuinely good product. And Hound, I think you've been privy to a bit. Although we don't give you the top of the range, sometimes we smother the uh, two I see under. <laughs> I have noticed that. <laughs> now, Hound, tell me something. Is there ever have you ever sat on a job or sat on a great story that you've been tempting to write, but for varying reasons, whether it be best known to yourself, that you've withheld, and no. then said, "Wish I hadn't written it." No, I don't think so. Uh, perhaps for a day or two or or something, but uh, no, nothing really springs to mind like that. I think everything gets written eventually because if you don't do it, Someone else somebody will. else will. Ron's book is called uh, War Games. It's out now. It's a father and son memoir of war and sport. Uh, Ron's a very, very uh, experienced journalist and book writer too. He's done the book on Frank Sedgman. Have you read that? No, I have. Uh, wonderful Australian and um, several others of course he's done plenty of uh, plenty of work this is a ripper and it, uh, it covers so many facets of life in fact I'd have more sporting books at home I know Kevin Sheedy's got a lot but I would have more the only one I haven't got is that one I haven't got that sent to me but I've got a lot of excerpts out of it but uh and I looked up a few of the things, but I haven't got the actual book hound. Well, that's on the way to you. Um, <laughs> been in the way for a week, Leon. There, that's a good hint. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a um, uh, there's a very moving story in this book uh, about, I don't know whether you want to go into it just before we finish, Ron, but about uh, McGorry and Aitken and their gold medal of pain you've called. I think you've called it gold from pain, uh, those two cyclists. Grief. Here, mm. Which was... Uh, I, I, we both know McGrory, of course, he's a fellow member of the Vang Sang, but I haven't met Aitken. As one is, as the hound is? Yes, well, well I meant collectively, yeah, collectively. all of us. Um, so uh, that's a story that's moving and, uh, and, and really worth telling. It's a very emotional story. Uh, the, the two of them, they, they won the Madison uh, on, the tr- on, the, uh, on the velodrome in Sydney in 2000. Now, Nobody would dispute that the face of the Sydney Games is Cathy Freeman, but I think if you were looking for an alternative for the uh, the Bill Roycroft Medal that I that I was proposing, this would they would certainly be a candidate. What happened was that uh, Scott's um, infant son Alex died uh, a few weeks before the games, and he had to train through that, and almost lost the plot. He admits he. Uh, he to the point where he uh, got to the morning of the event and looked over at uh, Brett in the other bed and wanted to tell him, I can't do this, I don't think we can win. But Brett was having his own troubles. He had an ill daughter too who, um, who uh, survived past the games but died, I think, at the age of 10, uh, mm. not all that long after. So the two of them had this extremely emotional lead-up uh, to the Olympics and yet still were able to come out and triumph. And uh, uh, Scott, Scotty McGrory, is, um, he tried to keep his career going after that, but he found himself in hotel rooms in Germany and elsewhere 
depressed. Yeah. Uh, depressed and in tears and eventually he had to give the, the, the sport away competitively. He's still very much involved now as uh, commentator. As, as we know, yeah. as a commentator and a, and a, and a race director and, and so on. But uh, it was a fantastic performance uh, for them to win that gold medal. All the more reason to get hold of your copy of uh, War Games, and you'll get one too, Sam, eventually. Oh, well, but in all good bookstores, uh, and where do we find it? Well, I think so, yeah. Uh, Wilkinson Publishing, uh, Amazon, Booktopia. Um, it's a must for every metal piece. Sporting books are fantastic, unique. And the hounds are different because it is a, uh, a journey over 50 years of journalism, you know, through major all the major sporting events. Some of the most significant ones, nine Olympics, geez, seven Tour de France's, every football major, probably every covered every major event in the world. Is there probably is there one event that uh, that you yearn to go to? Uh, I probably haven't done as much golf as I'd like. No, I don't play golf, but well, I would join Leon. There yeah. he goes. He does four <laughs> a week. Mm. I did the British <laughs> Open once uh, when Greg Norman's defending the title. Mm. That was on the photo one with uh, 18 pars in the last round. Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> but, yeah, uh, yeah I'd, I'd, I'd like to go to the Masters, but uh, no, pretty much everything else is... You've uh, done, yeah. Done, it's yeah. a fantastic line. Not a bad career. So it's uh, War Games, folks. Uh, go out and get your copy. And Sam, I'll see you again next week on Sport and Life. You will indeed, Leon. Thanks, Hound. Fantastic. Pleasure. Pleasure. Mm-hmm.